Hi friends, it's Diane at the Sailing Legends Podcast and you are going to love today's interview. I have traveled a couple hours from my home to be sitting at the dining room table of one of my college friends who we've been sailing with each other and against each other for God knows how long. Anyway, he has some amazing stories and you are going to love listening to his wisdom about yachting. So as you know, the Sailing Legends podcast is all about legacy, lore, and lessons. And I'm sure you will learn a lot from Jeff Grossman, my very good friend. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you. So I want to start off with, how'd you learn how to sail? And what was your first experiences actually on the water sailing? Um, I was on the water since before I could remember on powerboats. My first sailing experience, I was seven. And my dad put me in a, what we called a pram back then. They're Optimus thingies today. But I showed up halfway through the season and actually didn't like it. I got a little scared. So it was another five years when I was 12 when a neighbor got a Rhodes 19 and allowed my dad to sail it. And my dad was ex-Coast Guard and he was a racing sailor at a Buffalo. So he took me out on the roads and then I loved it. And we started sailing every weekend since. Um, I never took formal lessons because dad was an experienced sailor and so he taught me. And uh, amazingly, by the time I was 15, he was letting me take his Venture 22 to the Keys without him for weekends. Oh, amazing. So you learned how to sail really fast then. That's quick learning. Yeah, pretty quick. Wow. What was your favorite part when you were younger? Um, I think my favorite part was the, the freedom and, and the quiet and the wind power taking over the boat. And yet there was still action. The Rhodes 19 didn't even have a cleat. You had to hold the sheet the whole day. And so you're busy. You were doing things. And I love learning. And there was so much to learn. And I've been learning sailing all my life. And there's still a lot to learn. Oh, amazing. And you're, you're really skilled at, at sailing and teaching people how to sail and all that kind of stuff. So from the Rhodes 19, I remember capsizing one and actually turtling it off of St. Pete Yacht Club once. And they said you couldn't do that. So you just brought back that really big memory like, oh, yeah. Oh, well, sorry about that. Anyway, so, so after the Rhodes 19 and getting a little older, tell us a little bit more about where you went with your sailing. So... Um after the Rose 19, mom said, hey, it seems to be something the family likes. Why don't you get a boat like that and the family will go sailing? So dad came home with the Venture 22, which to mom was a lot bigger. The first thing we did was go out and scare the heck out of my mom and sisters and they were done with sailing. So my dad and I would go out on the, on the Venture all the time. And as I said, by the time I was 15, we had done enough weekend trips to the Keys that dad felt confident enough to let me take her down there. And about every three months, all through high school, my friends and I would take that venture down for two, three, four days and go play in John Penny Camp in the Upper Keys. When I went off to college in 73, Dad bought an Irwin 28. And so at 19, um, we took a trip over to the Bahamas. And then starting again at 19 on spring breaks and holidays, I'd take his Irwin 28 to the Bahamas and go cruising. Back then, there was no electronic navigation. Our entire battery bank was one car battery. Um, if you needed to take a shower, you look for a rain shower. So oh, great. Yes. That, that's like roughing it compared to how it is these days. Out completely there. different. So you sailed on the college sailing team for the University of Florida. Yes. So give us a little color about what that was like. Um, it was interesting. I had a little taste of racing with my dad, but not much. And I got to the college and I started sailing on the Sunfish and really loved the racing, loved the one design sailing. Um, compared to my associates, I was coming to the racing a little bit late. So I had a lot to learn. And I found that I was good enough to get mid-fleet or a little better than mid-fleet, but there were a couple guys who'd been to the Worlds and the Olympics 
and they were always ahead. I never forget one race though where I was concentrating on my boat speed and I looked up and I was ahead of those two guys and my concentration shattered like a piece of glass hit with a rod and they both passed me in seconds. <laughs> so that moment of glory was so fleeting. Very fleeting, yes. <laughs> oh. But you learn so much following around people of that caliber. And uh, we had a fleet of sunfish and then flying juniors. Then after college, uh, well, I was Commodore of the team at, at the end of my days there. And then I went on to some racing of bigger boats after. And that, that experience served in very good stead. Oh, that's great. Yes, because I was right behind you. So you were going out as Commodore as I was coming, coming in. Coming in. I think you were the Commodore after I was a, me. Yeah, I was a Commodore after you. And then yep. I started the women's team because when you were the Commodore, I was just sailing with all the guys. I was the only girl out there sailing with all the guys. And... Annapolis gave us that hard time and so then now and then I ended up becoming a Commodore and starting the women's team mm -hmm. right on your heels and so that was those were all those fun memories sailing over the alligators yep. Lake Wahlberg and, yep. and and I remember yelling at my parents about how did you send me to a school with a toilet bowl lake when I was used to the Gulf <laughs> like it was just crazy you know you mentioned the gators so it doesn't have to do the racing but I learned that it was a good date to invite a girl out for sale on the sunfish and I learned the hard way if you wanted a second date don't sail over the alligator. <laughs> yes, because it probably scared them. Oh, it made them very nervous. Yes. <laughs> the gators would run, but the date didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be a good test of how strong they were able to handle the sailing vibe, though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, so racing after college. Tell us a little bit about that. So after college, um, I bought a KL25, and I started mm -hmm. racing that on Tampa Bay. And there was a gentleman there by the name of Dick Ware who had a KL25 and racing the bay forever. And I followed him around and learned a ton following him around. Actually, beat him once. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was a real major school of learning. Then in 1985, I bought a CNC-38. The boat had been boat of the year in Miami. When I bought the boat from the owner, he looked at me and said, you're going to race? I said, yes. And he says, well, if you don't win, it's not the boat's fault. That was a bit intimidating. Wow. Took me and my crew about three years to learn racing a 38-footer in a competitive fashion, but by the time we got her going and bought some new sails, um, we became very competitive in the region, regional fleets. And some of the best racing to this day I've ever done, there was another boat in our fleet, a Santana 35, that rated almost boat for boat. And the two boats were very well matched through a wide range of wind. And it got to the point where we just matched race for about three years. The rest of the fleet became irrelevant. And we, had some, we would race 35-mile races and be overlapped the whole time. Oh, that's great. It was just it was wonderful. So do you remember any one of those single races or an event during one of those races where you're match boat racing that other boat that taught you a lesson that you were kind of surprised to learn? Oh, uh, there were so many that it's hard to pick one. Um, well, <laughs> geez. so we're going downwind. Back then, the boats would carry a sail called a blooper. Modern boats don't carry them. But their mains were so tall and thin that when the spinnaker was out on one side and the main on the other, the main did not balance the spinnaker. So you'd fly another nylon sail outside the main called the blooper, and that would provide balance. So we're racing straight downwind, 30 knots of true wind. We got the chicken shoot up. That's a small spinnaker when you're too chicken to put up the big one. And the blooper. The boats are very well balanced. The whole crew of nine is sitting on the stern rail behind me to hold the stern and the rudder in the water. Seam opens up in the blooper, and we've got to take the sail down. So we strike the blooper, and then my tactician and sailmaker start arguing about how we should set the rig to keep her balanced. <clears throat> the rig didn't wait. The rudder stalled, 
and we went from straight downwind flat to 90 degrees on the side with the spreaders in the water in a blink of an eye. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> All the crew stayed aboard. It was amazing. The real amazing thing is one crew member leapt off, released the preventer so the main boom would drop, boat got back on her feet, the chute refilled, we took off again, Miracle didn't break a thing and went on to win the race. Oh, nice. But, um, you know, the CNC-38 was a displacement boat. She's not a modern sport boat. She didn't plane. And that day we hit 14 and a half knots on her. Right. And the pressure behind a boat that's a displacement boat going that fast yep. is unfathomable unless you've actually lived it. it. It's something that it doesn't sound like it's fast or big or heavy, but it is. And oh, it, yeah. it, it's unbelievable. And it's really good that you had crew that could think on their feet and, and take care of the preventer and knew what to do. Yes. Especially when the other two are kind of arguing over, over how to handle it because of that, that could save the day. Well, and at that point, we've been rail racing together for enough years that um, I was blessed with a well-oiled crew. Um, I had a cockpit crew chief who ran that. I had a woman who ran the foredeck and she was really good up there. And it allowed me and my tactician to just focus on the racing part of the boat and the mechanics of handling it the crew could take care of. Perfect. You were led right into my next question, and that is about sailing and racing sailing, especially on a 38-foot boat being a team sport. Very much. I was asked once in a, in a job interview, do you participate in a team sport? And I said, yes, I race boats. Mm -hmm. And back then we sailed a PT-38 crew. That would be team, right? Mm -hmm. And the person who was interviewing me laughed, like did not believe me. So speak a little bit about the value of seeing it as a team sport and and how you were able to get that team to be that well-oiled machine over mm -hmm. that time. What, what are some things that you know, people could learn, like some tips about doing that? It's interesting because I was asked the same question in an interview one time and they didn't understand either. Um, the key, the first thing is having good coalescing of the personalities aboard. Because if everybody doesn't get along well, then they're not gonna race well together because it is a team sport. And I would much rather have brought somebody aboard that was less experienced, but fit well with the rest of the crew and had the enthusiasm to learn. Mm -hmm. We could train them up. And that worked much better than taking somebody who knew everything but couldn't play well with others. We talk about team sports, and there are very few sports where everybody on the field has to do their job at exactly the same time for it to work. Even in football with 11 players, on many plays, some players are kind of extraneous. There may be decoys or they're not really doing something on that particular play. But you do a spinnaker um, a dip pole jive on a 38-footer, and all 10 people need to exercise their jobs at precisely the same time and precisely the same way at the same moment. And when they do that without saying a word, it's a thing of beauty. Mm, it's and exquisite. It just took years of, of practice and Many of the boats didn't go out for practices. We did, and we did frequently. Then the other thing we did was we would have a lot of crew events that were off the boat to help build the esprit de corps amongst the crew, involve the wives, involve the crew. We'd go for dinners, we'd go to parks, so that we truly were a bunch of friends and a team. And the idea on board the boat was also to have fun. We were serious, but we weren't screaming, we weren't yelling, we weren't getting really upset with each other. Someone made a mistake, you made a mistake, we all do. Move on, just go on. But we're out here for fun, and, and the more fun we had, the better we did. Right, yeah, and that's true, you know, and, and building the relationship off the water is so important. And you mentioned about screaming on the boat, and a couple other people I've interviewed have mentioned, you know, all about people screaming and yelling, and, and we know some people mutually over the many years we've been sailing together that 
they can get out of control, mm-hmm. angry, and kind of spoil it for everybody else. So if, if somebody finds themselves on a boat, maybe they're learning how to sail, and there's people who are maybe acting in a way that's uncomfortable for them, do you have any um, tips about how they could change or make any adjustments to not be around that kind of energy? Uh, find another boat to sail on. Very good. Just that simple, right? That simple, because you're not going to change those personalities. And sometimes it's innate in the personality. Sometimes it's just because that person doesn't have the experience level yet. And if you maybe find another boat for a while, and as they build their experience, they get more confidence, you'll see them kind of quiet down and and not be quite so upset on the water. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. So when you want to beat, when you're learning, I always tell people to find some people that have depth of experience. And you would classify as that, mm-hmm. and your beautiful wife ca- classifies as that, I classify as that, and mm-hmm. so we're happy to be kind of ambassadors and teach just about anybody anything. Mm-hmm. So after the CNC 38, then tell us where your sailing life has led you. So we had the CNC for about uh, 14, 15 years, and towards the end of her life, they invented this thing called the J27. Well, the J27 rated in the same division as my CNC, but it could plane. So it was a very light boat, what eventually would become called sport boat classes. Uh, in light air, she could outsail me. In heavy air, they'd plane by like they were shot out of a cannon. And I'm sitting there owing them time, and it was just the exercise of futility. So if you can't beat them, join them. So I retired the CNC from racing, and I became tactician on the J27. Then my wife and I, once I, I met Jean, we started trying to cruise the race boat. That proved not to work very well. <laughs> um, if she wanted hot water, she had to get a pan and put it on the little Coleman burner to oh heat hot water to cook or whatever. It didn't have a fresh water pump. It didn't have any amenities for cruising. And we wanted to do some more extensive long distance cruising. So we sold the CNC and bought what's called a Sky, S-K-Y-E, Sky 51. And she looks like a swan. She's a performance cruiser. Drew almost seven and a half feet. And um, her, the sky's tagline is strong and fast. And she was both. Mm-hmm. Her interior volume was a little smaller compared to a modern 50 by a lot. But that was not important. Plenty of room for the two of us and our two cats. But she was so fast that we would often have shortened sail, be barely healing, and still beat our buddy cruisers into the next anchorage. And with her, we would do offshore races. We tried to do the local regional ones and prove that short tacking a cutter rigged 51 catch doesn't work. But on a 220 mile race to Key West, or we did the 500 mile race to Mexico, and she could really stretch her legs and do very well for that. Yes, and her name was Polyphonic. Polyphonic. And she was one of the most beautiful, elegant, unbelievably great boats. She was a wonderful boat. We had her about 14 years, and we actually won that race to Mexico and set a course record for non-spinnaker that stood for a long time. And then, um, in fact, I'll, it's a bit of a bragging story, but I gotta tell it. Yeah, tell it. So we get into the finish line, and I knew we were gonna do well in the Mexico race. I knew we'd beaten the cruisers and non-spinnakers, but I didn't realize until we came around the corner and looked at the marina that we had beaten boat for boat almost all the spinnaker boats. There were three 80-foot and 70-foot class boats in Fazizi, the Whitbread 80, uh, an Andrew 68, and a Santana, um, uh, 70, uh, Santa Cruz 70, excuse me. Mm. The only other spinnaker boat to beat us was an extremely well-sailed Trip 33. But we beat all the other boats boat for boat. So we get in, we get docked, we get the awnings out, everybody takes the showers, the guitars out. We've been there like eight, ten hours when a stripped-out Beneteau First 51 comes in that owes us 
um, you know, we hours and hours and hours, and we beat them by the same amount of time. Jean says the look on their face, priceless. Oh, that's amazing. So, for all you listeners, this is a race that's very familiar to us, and you've heard mentioned the Islam Harris race on other interviews already, and you'll probably hear it again because it's a very big race from us. And so, from St. Petersburg to Islam Harris, Mexico, which is off the Yucatan, it's 500 miles. Mm-hmm. It takes a few days to get there, and it's always an adventure. You know, sometimes no air, sometimes too much air, sometimes a combination of all those things and all different kinds of things. And so to be on a boat and own the boat and sail it that well, that far, is a huge accomplishment. So, of course, my next question is, what neat event happened on that race? Tell us, give us a little color of what that's like being at sea. You know, like I, we talked earlier about the Milky Way and being able to have, mm-hmm. you know, the, this connection with nature. So what was really powerful for you on that race? I think it was several different things. Um, one thing that was powerful is the race traditionally was won by boats that would follow a route that dropped down the Florida coast to Cuba, follow the Cuban coast, and then over to Isla. That year, the confluence of weather and the, what's called the loop current of the Gulf Stream were quite different than normal, and we realized that. And we took a very different route, and that's really what allowed us to do so well. The other thing that was different is we normally race with a lot of women in our crew. So that year we had eight crew members, five women, three guys. And we got in and one of the boats was overheard being snide going, well, that boat's not rated right. Obviously so fast that even girls can sail it. And of course that had our women just like, yeah, (laughs) not happy about that. But we had some absolutely gorgeous, um, at one point, the course to Isla was a southeast, excuse me, a southwest course. Mm-hmm. But because of sailing over the top of the Gulf Stream and because of the wind direction, there was a point of a night where we were broad reaching off at 12 knots. And this is in a 40,000 pound supposedly cruising boat. And we're doing 12 knots steady on a broad reach heading due west. And in our fleet, our arch competitor was Mason 53. We owed him a little time and he was right there on our stern. If he just stayed with us, he would have won. But when the skipper of that boat came on deck and saw us heading due west, he told our crew, well, they're going the wrong way. Mexico's that way. And he sailed right into the Gulf Stream loop current. And his crew later said it was like sailing into molasses. And they just parked. We actually finished almost a day and a half ahead of them. And that glorious, that sail, that broad reaching was just glorious. Mm, All loaded up. That boat loved it. Yep. Oh, that is amazing. And I think it's great that you sail with more women and... And it's funny that that person said that. That shows just the level of ignorance because there's a lot of finesse when when strong women are racing boats. And one of the things, I had this memory of polyphonic that stuck in my head. And it's really not about sailing, even though sailing on her was really fun. But there was this one time we were at Clearwater Yacht Club. was a race. And polyphonic was, you guys had her anchored out because you couldn't get it all the way in, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so so somebody was delivering me to the boat. Mm -hmm. Probably one of our mutual friends. Don't remember that part. All I remember is coming up from the stern of the boat and you're standing there and Jean's in the companion way and I can smell banana bread. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. And like you said, welcome aboard. And Jean says, do you want some banana bread? And I'm like, I have just landed in heaven. I cannot even believe this. And it was, and I still tell everybody that story that it was that moment of, oh no, this is even better than cool. And <laughs> And I, you know, and, and I still, I like, I'm speechless thinking about it now because it's just one of those things that's like in my memory, the looks on your faces, the smell, the beauty of the boat and all of like the connection. We had such a great race that day. 
And um, we had fun, and I think we won it. But I remember the banana bread. <laughs> well, in the Mexico race, each night, the fleet would check in for safety and security. And so for the first night, the moderator goes, so what's everybody having for dinner? And, you know, it's peanut butter and jelly, and it's, you know, freeze-dried food or military rations. And we come on and said, well, we're having pot roast and potatoes and, you know, bake this and whatever. And we, so by the third night, when they asked what everybody was having for dinner, they said, we don't want to hear from you, Polyphonic. <laughs> yes, because you were making everybody jealous. Exactly. You know, and so it, that is one of those memories that will always stick in my head. So then what happened? Tell us a little bit more about your sailing life. After the so, Mexico race. After the Mexico race, we, um, the business that I was in, we were in the telecommunication industry. The industry had its own recession and there was no work to be had. So Gene and I said, you know, we could stay home and spend all our money or let's go cruising. So we took off for a couple of years cruising in the Caribbean, us and the two cats. And it was absolutely glorious. Um, the Bahamas all the way down to Grenada. And um, it was really a, a wonderful time. And um, uh, there's so many stories that come from that that it's hard to describe. I, I don't know why this one comes to mind, but we were sailing between uh, Guadalupe and Dominica, and up ahead was a boat that looked a little unusual. So we changed course a little bit to sail alongside of him as we went by. And we probably passed, I don't know, 30, 40 feet off her beam and waved at the couple as we went by. We get in the anchorage, and sometime later, it was a smaller boat, they came in and they came over and they said, you guys scared us. I said, what do you mean scared us? Because you came so close. Well, we're used to racing, where if you're a foot apart, that's normal at the start. And for us, 40 feet was a long way away from them. But for them, they'd never been that close to another boat under sail. And for us, it was a lesson in difference of perspectives between cruisers and those that have experienced racing. Right. Yeah, sometimes a foot distance at a start line on a race is like a long distance. You yeah. know, it's, sometimes it's inches and exactly. you know, pull your feet in because they're about to get sawed off. And yep. 30 or 40 feet, they're like, whoa, that's funny. That's exactly. hilarious. So when you were on that long, wonderful cruise, mm -hmm. what was your favorite island? You know, we get asked that a lot. <clears throat> and I have to say, it's kind of like asking parents of six kids, which is the favorite kid. Mm -hmm. um, you can't. There's so many wonderful islands. Uh, Ile de Sants, which is a sprinkling of islands just south of Guadeloupe, we love. Uh, we love spending time in Antigua. Um, we'll at some point get to our business, but the nature is we do a lot of charters with guests, and we love going to Antigua because you get all the different sailing characteristics there. You can sail in smooth water, you can sail around reefs, you can sail in big open seas, and you get a taste of everything. Um, we love Guadeloupe for provisioning because it's such a lush island. And you can walk in the treetops and different, mm -hmm. um, there's canopy walks up there. <clears throat> um, so it's, it's hard to, to pick one that says is our best. Dominica is a, a nature island, and we love visiting Dominica. So we love the same islands. You yep. just named all of my favorites of, yep. of that whole chain, and I'm like, I didn't know that. <laughs> I never asked you that question before anyway. So that's really interesting. So you came back. To Florida mm -hmm. with Polyphonic, correct. And you and Jean were still talking, and um, and your cats were still with you, right? Well, not only that, one of the things we realized, and we've actually put this in our book, and that is, life on a small boat is like a magnifying glass. So I have seen couples that had already problems ashore. There was issues between them, and for some reason they thought getting in a small boat was going to fix those, and it does not. It exacerbates them. Yes. But Jean and I already got along extremely well. And then after two years on the boat, it was even better. 
uh, was so good that I came back and I, I took a job that required me to go to California for two weeks. And I was almost crying because I hadn't been away from Jean for more than an hour <laughs> in years. And it was very hard. Um, once I got back from that, and now we work together as a business. So it's just a wonderful uh, enhancement of the relationship. If it's, believe it or not, if you have a good relationship, it gets even better. And uh, the two cats, well, one of them was a seagoing kitty, one of the roughest nights I've ever spent at sea. He's below eating out of his food bowl. The other one got seasick. Oh. And the other one eventually learned that when the main engine started, it meant we were going to sea, and it would start yowling immediately. And it also had a yowl that was directly proportional to sea state. So I didn't need to look at the wind meters or anything. I could just tell by the yowling how rough it was. Oh, poor kitty. <laughs> oh, yes. Sarge did not like going to sea. So when you all were in ports and things on this trip, were people surprised that you had cats on your boat? No, not at all. Amazing number of boats sail with pets, with cats, dogs, and kids. So um, it was very common. Oh, that's cool. Yep. I love it. Okay, so then tell us about your sailing today. So as we cruised, we, most cruisers are couples. And most are retired couples, but not all. There's, there's a sprinkling of families and, and people that are younger. But what we had observed is back on land, there are sailing schools. Traditionally, there were men teachers, period. Men teaching men. Then as women came into sailing, there were women teaching women. But we did not see couples teaching couples, the unique dynamics of two people sailing a boat. And there wasn't the next level of teaching being taught. There was the ASA progression, which is an outstanding progression and important. Sheets and halyards and bow and stern and the basic mechanics. But there wasn't the next level of how do you keep a cruising boat operating? What's the next level of weather? What's the next level of, of cruising? And we saw a need for that. And so we started a company called Two Can Sail, T-D-W-O-C-A-N-S-A-I-L. Strictly focuses us as a team, teaching couples as a team, two on two, uh, how to go cruising and we would do some of the ASA beginning classes but we pretty much focused on those couples who had already taken those were looking at actually buying the boat or had already bought the cruising boat and wanted that training aboard and we've been doing that for almost 12 years now and um, as part of that we we take them from soup to nuts from the beginning training through advanced training through shopping for the boat buying the boat because we're also yacht brokers then once they bought the boat, we'll train them on the boat. And then we offer them support for their whole cruising life. We're always there by email or phone, any questions they have about weather, charting, issues they're having with the boat. And then when they're ready to sell it, we'll sell it for them too. So it's the whole life cycle. Oh, that is really amazing. Toucan Sale. And I will put the information on how to reach them and learn more about Toucan Sale in the show notes. And what you're also going to realize when you hear, as you listen to this podcast is I will also be interviewing Jean, Jeff's wife, who I've known for many, many years. We've won some women races together, Jean and I. And then you will get to hear the really cool interview with the two of them together about some of the things that they've learned and taught people how to do and things like that as a couples teaching other couples, which is not being done by anybody else that I know of. And it was their brainchild and it's really amazing. They've written a book and I understand there's a couple more coming out. So we'll have all that information for you in the show notes on all three of these episodes so that you can be sure to follow them because they are amazing people. So I've asked you a ton of questions and 
What I'd like to know is if there's something that you want to share with maybe somebody who's listening who's maybe new at sailing or kind of curious, and what would you say from your heart to their heart about sailing the sport and what it's about being a lifelong sailor? It's an incredible opening to a, an incredible world. As I mentioned, I love learning. And if you're someone who likes to learn, I've been putting effort into learning my art for almost 50 years now. And there is more for me to learn than I already know. It's yeah. an infinite body of knowledge. And so it's just, there's always someone to learn something new from. You will, if you're thinking about long distance sailing, you will meet people or you will read them in the magazine sometimes where they say, just go, just go, just get on a boat and go. And you'll hear of people that actually do that successfully. But they're one out of a thousand. The other 999 don't write the books. So we say you don't need to wait too long, but get training first. Because if you don't just go, as one person just recently said, don't confuse luck with skill. Oh, there that's are a good some one. skills needed. Take the time to get the training, to get the base and foundation of skills, and then you and your partner will enjoy the cruising lifestyle. And like you're saying, they'll have more confidence because Absolutely. they'll have that behind them. And that is perfect advice in my mind. So everybody, you've been listening to my really good friend and amazing sailor, Jeff Grossman, and check him out. I'll put all of the ways to follow him in the show notes. And remember, until the next episode of the Sailing Legends podcast, to have fair winds and following seas. Be well.